Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Let's Talk About Cities, a podcast dedicated to making complex topics in architecture and urban design more accessible. I'm Katharina. I'm one of your hosts for this podcast. I'm originally from Vienna. I've been living there for 25 years, but now made the move to Sweden in autumn together with Matthias. In Vienna, I studied spatial planning, which kind of is a mixture between urban and regional planning. And now at Lund University in Sweden, I've started uh, sustainable urban design as my master's program. And I'm Matthias. I studied my bachelor's in architecture in Umeå in the north of Sweden and uh, did my master's in architecture at Vienna Technical University. We hope you'll enjoy the podcast and uh, join the discussion. Today in this very first episode, we'll talk about gentrification, a complex process that is uh, taking place all over the world. And therefore, we felt like it's a good topic to start with, as some of you might know or know the word, but maybe not uh, precisely the, the processes happening. And um, we're trying to explain what it actually means, where it's coming from, and... Um, also try to to go through the different stages that can be um, that can be seen when gentrification is taking place yeah and then we'll also give some examples of possible solutions or actions to take to to um, hinder or deal with gentrification we hope you'll enjoy the episode and uh, let us know what you think One by one, many of the working-class neighborhoods of London have been invaded by the middle classes, upper and lower. Shabby, modest mews and cottages, two rooms up and two down, have been taken over when their leases have expired and have become elegant, expensive residences. Once this process of gentrification starts in a district, it goes on rapidly until all or most of the original working-class occupiers are displaced and the whole social character of the district is changed. That's a quote from London Aspects of Change, a 1964 book by the sociologist Ruth Glass, uh, first coining the the expression of gentrification. And what we can read out of it is um, uh, that it leads to displacement of poorer residents and and that it changes the social character of an area. Um, but I think today we should really untangle this quote and um, go through all the different stages within this process and also think about uh, what does gentrification actually mean? Uh, can there be uh, any positive aspects to it as well? And um, how does it start? Where does it start? And why does it start? Yeah. Um, First of all, I think it's important to mention before the process of gentrification starts, there's oftentimes a disinvestment in a certain area. So the the buildings might look run down or there are amenities that people would like to have that are just not there. And um, it, it can be 
a strategic thing for uh, investors or developers not to invest somewhere mm -hmm. in order for it to become cheaper land. Yeah, yeah, or even invest and then uh, let it become rundown. Um, as uh, happens in many places, of course, but um, in Berlin, there's a firm and they take over or, or invest in um, rental property and then um, perform quite crappy renovations or don't renovate uh, at all. And so try to push the 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 renters out so that they can get new ones with higher mm -hmm. uh, levels of rent mm -hmm. um but maybe first of all I, i would have liked to introduce the the theory the rent gap theory by neil smith beforehand because i think it fits quite well right now and um it so what the theory is about it measures the the gap as it says between the current rental income and the um, possible value of the um, of the rental income. So um, the developers see that there is a gap and therefore um, see this higher potential. And um, Neil Smith argues that the overall rental gap is if it, if it is if the overall rental gap in an area is high, it is likely that it will undergo gentrification as the mm -hmm. developers see, the potential for the rents to rise. Yeah. Um, so this might be a, um, a reason why an area or like a, um, why gentrification a happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. But that's one theory. And I, I mean, as I've said before, I think it's, um, in a way actually quite a weak one because, um, speaking about the, the potential to, raise rents in an area and therefore increase profits. I think that's quite clear that that would be the reason to invest. What else? I mean, it's mm -hmm. the purpose of a real estate company to, to invest in order to achieve profits. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's a bit of a weak theory. And I mean, there are many others as well, um, competing theories. And I would say there are some, there are apparently American economists who favor a um, a view that it's uh, a cyclical thing, that it's a natural cycle, that um, it's not something um, really purposefully uh, done by uh, any agency or, or person, but rather just a natural cycle that some areas are worth more and then time progresses and Other areas uh, are worth more and those who that are then worth less in a way uh, become those with potential. Mm -hmm. um, then there are theories looking into a multitude of factors, so e economical situations, social situations and, and really in-depth looks at the, at the demographics and politics of an area, which we won't go into today, but just to illustrate that there are also competing theories mm -hmm. as to why it happens. Mm -hmm. Um maybe we can we can try to illustrate 
a typical process of gentrification to explain it on an example. So for example, we have an area that might have been, there might have been um, disinvestment in the past. So as I said before, the buildings are run down um, and there might be, it might be close to, to a center. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, in the suburbs, but um, it's been disinvested in. Mm -hmm. And then, um, therefore, the rents are low and um, the pioneers arrive. So mm -hmm. could, this could be um, students or artists uh, that need spaces for their lofts and cannot pay such high rents, for example. Yeah, that's a typical one. Yeah, right? I'm I trying mean, in, to... In any city. No, no. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm uh, just thinking when you say that, like um, artists and, and, and creatives, you get that example anywhere in, in Berlin or in, in New York with the loft renovations on Manhattan mm -hmm. in, I don't know, the 60s, 70s. Um, and in San Francisco also um, decades ago. So it's a reoccurring exactly. theme. Um, yeah, and, and of course that changes the neighborhood that maybe has been or still is run down, but they leave their imprint. So they maybe open up some music venues or they start putting graffiti on the walls or, um, I don't know, open some hip cafes or whatever. So they start to change the neighborhood. Yeah, and they create, um, you know, a, a, a demand for, well... Uh, Starbucks is, is one super indicator of gentrification, right? You know, when your area gets a Starbucks, it's becoming gentrified. But those artists um, or creative classes moving into an area create a demand that then is filled. And with that, the real increase in, in value comes. Exactly. Uh, so that I would say is step two, um, that the people around notice there's something happening um i want to be part of this uh this is like this trendy hip vibe of the area that you know have has this kind of roughness and they uh, maybe are bored with the super perfect neighborhoods that they have lived in before and therefore they want to be part of this new upcoming district mm -hmm. and um more and more people move into this area, even though they would be able to afford higher rents. Mm -hmm. So it's not the economic reason they they move there, but rather, yeah, being attracted to this trendiness. And mm -hmm. of course, developers also see that there's a potential there and that this um, whole district or area is uh, supposedly gonna bloom and and become more and more hip. And I guess in this stage might be that uh, Starbucks comes and, um, as you said, like opens their doors then. And um, yeah, so also chains come there. <laughs> and then um, you have this booming district and that actually, you know, for the people that um, originally came there might be a good thing because suddenly they have all the... Um, amenities that they would have liked to have before and had to to go further distances 
before and suddenly they have it in their district. They pay their uh, lower rents and um, it improves. And, and I think yeah, at but this likely stage, not because with all the, those amenities and, and, and with all that uh, activity, as I said, the value, the, the real estate value rises and the rents rise and the, the prices to, to buy apartments if they are um, on the market rises so it's quite unlikely that the people who were there before or even in the first wave the the creative classes do stay and i would also say that many of these creative classes they they value precisely this kind of derelict um forgotten uh character of an area so when when it becomes hip and 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 trendy they are already looking to move on to the next place This might be, yeah. But I, what I want to argue for is that there's a middle stage kind of where um, the people still pay. I mean, increasing rents doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it does that there be like, okay, next month you'll pay $300 more. But um, it's, it's quite unlikely that it happens uh, overnight. And therefore there might be this in-between stage that they actually have this booming district that is super hip and so on and uh -huh. has and that the district has uh, i don't know like a new supermarket and starbucks and whatever and maybe they like it because you know i think it's also important that there were people that were not just looking for this underground uh, trend or uh, underground image but rather just couldn't afford it anywhere else yeah but are they then gonna afford a eight euro cup of coffee at starbucks <laughs> or or this uh, organic bio supermarket produce mm -hmm. probably not um okay but we can move on to uh the stage where where the developers and i think that is It's not, of course, not possible to to separate it as such. But now the the developers also see the chance to invest even more. And um, if people come there and would actually be able to pay higher rents, but they come there because it's trendy, they still might um, ask for improved. Uh, like that the buildings are going to be improved or like the whole neighborhood that the infrastructure is being improved and that everything becomes a bit more um, livable. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that's a, in a way a bit vague because I think it's not necessarily so that people moving there ask for this or for new buildings or so. I would say the new buildings are a chance for investors to create this value because oftentimes um, there is rent control for existing buildings and so the only chance that they can move beyond a certain limit in, in prices that they then demand is to build mm -hmm. a new so they build new buildings just to achieve this and then they um, try to with whatever marketing or, or so to appeal to a certain demographic mm -hmm. um, or also in the in the aesthetics of the building and of course they do their market research um, for um, what people want right now if they're going to move into a new apartment whatever that might be um, a plan libre so like an open uh, plan or 
kitchen island or walk-in closet. I don't know, but they tried to achieve this to pull in a certain, um, you know, um, level of, of customer. And the other part is what, because obviously it's not just a matter of individuals and companies in these processes. It's also oftentimes involving um, local government. So uh, the city government or municipality that um, also, well, I don't know, for example, rebuild the square or the streets or try to um, introduce uh, green aspects. So I don't know, plant trees or remove parking spots or so. So that's something to look out for that uh, um, measures like that are not always necessarily uh, what they look like at first, just improving the quality of life in the city and it's great and so, but actually in a way improving the value of that area. So very much out of an economical perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I'm not sure if it's the answer to, to say that improvement is a bad thing because every neighborhood should be improved. It just, uh, there should be solutions that this improvement doesn't come with um, displacement. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, revitalizing an, a neighborhood is not a bad thing or improvement or whatever. So, mm -hmm. But um, gentrification always um, comes with displacement and the displacement is always a bad thing because the displacement doesn't happen because the people uh, want to, but... Yeah, we can go into different aspects of displacement later on, but well, I think if you if you if you make it an aspect of what is good and and bad, then um, you know you can also question well, why is it bad that people get displaced? Different you know, they move kind. somewhere else, and and then um, the the value of this area is raised, and that leads to higher tax revenues and lower crime rates. Uh, why wouldn't that be good to, to sort of sanitize an area like that? I'm playing the, the devil's advocate. Yeah, I hope so. For the people, you mean? Or no, you no, I've said no. <laughs> you mean from a, a city's perspective? Yeah. yeah, okay, I was a bit shocked now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But maybe um, we should talk about the different aspects of displacement and what what kinds there are. Sure. There's the direct displacement that residents are moved out because the rents are um, increased mm -hmm. and they just cannot um, afford it anymore. There is the exclusionary displacement that the housing choices for low-income residents are so limited that they cannot... Um, go there so it's kind of I, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it displacement because then they're not there you know but they are excluded from yes, this area yeah. and then there's the displacement pressure um, that services that are supporting the low income families are disappearing from the neighborhood and um, and they 
they maybe that is also included that they just don't feel a part of the community anymore. They mm -hmm. feel that they're not being re represented and feel, um, yeah, not like the odd ones out. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that is, um, I mean, that can be linked to other processes as well. I think that's, um, not necessarily to, to gentrify an area, but, um, this, this, uh, removal of funding for social services. And, uh, usually it also goes hand in hand with increasing funding for police and, and security services. Um, it's something that's been seen, for example, in the banlieues of France, in the suburbs with um, mostly immigrant population and, and social issues that you remove the, the support structure that is there, increase the police funding and then say, uh, what great problems we have in these areas, of course. Mm -hmm. So you increase the tensions and um, uh, perhaps you remember the scenes of, of riots and car fires in, in the banlieues and similar in London, of course. Um, and I think it was, I mean, the London riots, but also a lot in, in Tottenham, in that part of London. Um, in Sweden, for example, um, there's this, this idea of no-go areas and you had Trump saying, look at what happened in Sweden last night. Um, but, but actually those are long-term processes that are part of, I would say, an, a neoliberal um, policy to remove the support structure, um, increase the, the, the punitive uh, structure or police, and then say, oh, look how bad it is in these areas. Therefore, we should not provide them funding. Um, the same as uh, the, the neoliberal approach to remove funding from healthcare uh, from education and so on and then say oh look how bad they are we have to privatize them to increase the quality so they create this need for their preferred mm -hmm. um, action but is there a way to revitalize neighborhoods without gentrifying them um i mean there you get into i would say a bit of 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 uh, how to deal with gentrification in general mm -hmm. right Or to how to maybe not prevent it, but protect it a little bit from being gentrified. Yeah, yeah precisely. But that, that is then, yeah, a protection mm -hmm. towards gentrification or, mm -hmm. or to prevent it. And to what degree, one can question. But um, um, yeah, of course, I mean, there's rent control, which is probably the most effective um, measure um, if we look at, we didn't really go into earlier the, the different examples that I would have liked to do a, a bit shortly we did, but if we, we mentioned Berlin, mm -hmm. um, and the gentrification there. So if, I think the most famous examples are the quite central districts relatively of, uh, Prenzlauer Berg, Neukölln, Kreuzberg, and there are more as well, but, um, Those, the, the question of Berlin is very interesting because if you look at the history of the city and when it became a big city um, during the 1800s, it really increased hugely in size. And then in, in the early uh, 1900s, it got even bigger. Also when, when the uh, Groß Berlin, so the Great Berlin was uh, formed and included all the suburbs around it. And so, of course, it grew a, grew a lot bigger. Um, 
but there was this trend at that time for the more well-to-do to actually live in large houses um, on the periphery of the city. Mm-hmm. And since then, obviously, a lot has gone on. Modernism has, has come and gone pretty much. There's been the Second World War, First World War, Second World War, um, the Cold War with with uh, East and West Berlin. But it's still interesting uh, in that example, because in many other examples, it was always the center at least in Europe, uh, the the center of the city that had a certain prestige to live in. Um, and in Berlin, however, it was rather the periphery. So the center was was had this disinvestment and therefore uh, provided cheap and easy, uh, easily available uh, living. And so these areas, Prenzlauer Berg, Neukölln, Kreuzberg, and so on, um, had an influx of the creative classes and young people. Um, and then over more or less the last 30 years or so, since the, since the wall fell, the Berlin Wall, um, people from the rest of Germany have moved in there from more well-to-do areas. From There was this um, uh, scandal even, or not scandal, but controversy because people from uh, Schwaben uh, who are more well-to-do from West Germany uh, were moving to Berlin mm-hmm. and um, and um, creating this effect of gentrification, basically. So um, what there has been in Berlin has been a lot of direct action. So protests and a lot of um, community groups that have tried to, to fight this process. Mm-hmm. And... I'm not sure how well that has worked. Um, it's it's certainly been visible, but it, it doesn't really seem like it's um, been able to to stop the process. But then, in the last year or two, um, there's been a great um, success for these groups in Berlin because they've um, taken the 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 route of more um, what parliamentary democratic. Uh, measures and now there is uh, rent control in mm-hmm. Berlin or a new uh, Mietendeckel. Mm-hmm. So Deckel is a cover that you put on a jar rent, or something. Yeah, rent cap. A cap, exactly, yeah. a rent cap. Um, and that is starting to have effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the real estate firms are fighting it like crazy mm-hmm. and, and seeing how terrible it is. But that is one example that, that can really uh, protect against or prevent gentrification potentially mm-hmm. there is this thing called um tenants option to purchase so that it requires people to um that they are being offered to purchase the the apartment before it's being sold to someone else and um i mean i think there are many people that just cannot afford it. So it might be nice that they're being offered to purchase it, but then in mm-hmm. the end, if they cannot afford, well, it's just a sweet step to do in between, but I'm not sure if it really helps, but maybe maybe it does, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And there also is a community land trusts. So it's nonprofits that own land to ensure that it stays affordable for longer periods. Mm-hmm. So that's initially what I talked about. That it, of course it requires them to have a, um, quite a lot of money to to 
buy the land, but then they can be the ones to to decide how it is like well it depends when it happens i would say with the community land trusts mm -hmm. it's it's more of a thing in the uk and the us uh, rather than than in europe or continental europe but um you know it depends on in what stage of the process Uh, a community land trust is established mm -hmm. because obviously if it's before if it's in an area that doesn't really have a high value the prices wouldn't be that high or you can even um, do it for a, a, a symbological sum of say one euro to to transfer the rights to this land trust and then you avoid that whole issue if, if the land is owned by the municipality or the state There's also this thing called vacancy taxes. Of course, um, housing now is on the market, and um, if there's no housing, it will the demand will be higher because people need to live somewhere. And what many uh, developers do is that they buy a lot of uh, buildings and then they let it stay empty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and just then, to service objects. Exactly. Yeah. And um, I think it is incredible that, um, but in a very negative way, <laughs> that um, if people are, are looking for housing and then there's, there's like, for example, in, in Prague, mm -hmm. the whole city center is basically empty because no one can afford to live there. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like this Disney World kind of space where it's beautiful housing and uh, beautiful buildings, but no one can can afford to live there. And then every, like all the the um, citizens of Prague actually live in the suburbs because mm -hmm. they cannot really afford the city anymore. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I think that has a lot to do with identity as well. Mm -hmm. Who do you want to, like, should it be someone that is, I don't know, from uh, outside Europe that, that can afford all those uh, buildings and mm -hmm. then it's just Like there. in Vienna, where the first district is basically owned by Russians. Yeah. And yeah. what does it do to a place? It's, mm -hmm. it's oftentimes empty or it's just maybe then we can also talk all about the expensive Airbnb shops. or something like that. You I think know? we absolutely should. Yeah. But yeah. With these central districts, they're filled with the fancy shops and, and Louis Vuitton, whatever. People like to go there and, and, and look in the windows or even go inside and look at the products. But it's not really something they're part of in, in any other way. Exactly. So one, one should think about, I mean, of course, when, when money is the, the main thing you think about, um, because, yeah, of course, you want to, as an investor, want to make as much money as possible. But the city should regulate it in a way and and try to to do everything the city can yeah. to to put a cap on it because mm. um, but again there is a, I, i wouldn't say it's necessarily that easy to say just um they the city should do this or that because yes on the surface it might seem the reasonable or even um right thing to do but You could also argue foreign investors, even if they are speculating, um, do bring investment. And this investment will in some way trickle 
um, to to tax um, and these luxury shops as well and they do at least um, attract people and tourists as well so and Airbnb as well or if you look at the city center of Prague then I mean they have millions of tourists and and this is of, of course very important for the um, for the economy of a, of a city and even a state so and that is then again needed to um, to have lots of other um, um, policies if it's um, I don't know housing benefits or so helping people who don't have an income mm -hmm. to have a place to stay at all and so on so I think it's actually a bit more complex than just to say okay control the market um, create rules to stop the speculation and make sure everyone has a place to live that we can avoid this um, uh, inner migration in the cities and, and displacement it is a complex topic yeah. for sure i agree but there are however things um i mean we mentioned some now but there are things that can be done and um to put it to a concrete example I also quickly want to mention Vienna that has this new zoning law um, that at least from all the new buildings that are being developed, one third of them has to be subsidized. The other, the second third is um, affordable housing and the third... Which is another level of subsidizing. So it's not exactly. quite as much. Yeah. So actually you could say two thirds are in some way subsidized. Um, even though they vary uh, in between. And then the third third is um, freely financed. Mm -hmm. And that quantifies, I mean, of course, it's not nice for the developers, but apparently they can still make a profit out of it or it's still profitable. Otherwise, they would, wouldn't continue, I guess. And that really helps to... to uh, make sure that there is housing for low-income families and that it's being continued to, to develop. Mm -hmm. And to ensure a certain social mix. Vienna has a rich history of, of affordable housing and I think we will go into um, the history of the Rote Wien in another episode. Red Vienna, yeah. But um, it's important, I believe, that um, it's also... There are regulations that ensure it for the future mm -hmm. to still be accessible for different um, families with different incomes. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, another thing, lastly, I want to mention is that if you develop an area in my ideal world, it would be that you put you get together with the community and talk about what is needed within the area and maybe mm -hmm. that an improvement of the area can happen in a way that is bottom up, bottom, top, top. Yeah, bottom up and that they can still uh, identify with their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of Airbnb, as we mentioned it, I think about that, you could also make an entire one, two, three hour talk, but um, obviously it can also be a driver of gentrification. Um, 
as there tend to be a lot of uh, Airbnb um, flats in precisely the, the central and hip areas of cities. So you see it all over Europe and there have been much publicized uh, controversies in, in well, most cities, but Amsterdam, for example, where they um, are seem to be really, really fed up with mm-hmm. tourists. And I think they've introduced laws already to, to cap Airbnb. In Barcelona, there have been protests and, and um, uh, violent protests uh, against Airbnb. And but then it's not only about the shortage of housing it creates, it's also about the over-tourism that the people don't feel... Uh, yeah, absolutely. But in essence, it's it's uh, comparable to the gentrification because it's still about the conflict between different demographics. And in 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 the case of Airbnb, it's the demographic of even more outsiders because it's not from a different part of the city or mostly not even a different part of that country, but uh, foreigners. And without that meaning that it's uh, about xenophobia, it's not just foreigners. They don't move there. They are there for a short while and they don't care about the long term um, um, uh, character or, or, or anything actually about um, of the city, the quality of life there. So they come for a while. They are there for their pleasure only and um, then they leave. You know? And that creates a lot of conflict and I think that's very understandable. So there has been that in, in many countries a, a debate on how to how to handle Airbnb mm-hmm. because obviously that again brings tourists that's a source of income for for the city in taxes and also for the local businesses who, who might be very happy um, with that um, and obviously you know now during corona you cannot really travel so Airbnb has taken a big hit um, so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens uh, after Corona, if there is such a thing and post post COVID with Airbnb, if they recover um, and even if they slightly recover, if there continue to be laws and regulations directed against them, or if maybe there are uh, competitors of Airbnb, like we've seen with Uber, you know, then there's Lyft and and other firms uh, trying to get in on the market and, and trying to have a slightly different offer will be quite interesting, I think. We'll see what the future brings. Yeah. Um, regarding Vienna uh, and this um, right to buy or Vorkaufsrecht or so. Um, since the 80s, there is in Vienna um, a fund from the city that uh, has the purpose of uh, sanitating and renovating the stock of housing and a lot of that uh, is um, um, rental apartments uh, partly owned by the city uh, or even newly built ones the, what I want to get at here is that there's tax money um, invested by the city to improve renovate and, and, and sanitate the, the housing stock and with that in some cases comes this right to buy or especially in the, when 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 uh, new flats are built, and what this essentially means is that it, it's usually with a ten or fifteen year waiting period. So what this essentially means is that 
tax money is being invested to either produce and build or to renovate uh, housing. And after 10 to 15 years, this um, uh, is turned into capital and put on the market. So it's public money being um, transformed into private money. And I think that's really um, um, questionable. I think you really have to look at what's going on there because it has this this um, this uh, veneer, this this uh, appearance of being simply a positive measure of, of obviously either producing and building new housing, great, or or renovating and sanitating um, housing that is uh, um, below the the acceptable standards, but in the end that turns into private money and i think that has to be looked at uh, maybe we'll do that when when we speak more about red vienna mm -hmm. because it's uh, um, then kind of at the end of the story about red vienna and the gemeindewohnungen and the the um the housing politics in vienna in general yeah right so should we finish there do we feel like we've covered gentrification so. to some like degree we're, we're already going into different episodes yeah. and i mean it's a scholarly topic of its own, of its own it's it's a, an entire um, field of urban studies mm -hmm. so you can go as deep as you want but maybe uh, we have covered the most important aspects i, I hope, hope so, yeah. and i hope that you guys have a clearer understanding of what the process of gentrification means and um, yeah, what it's all about, what, what could be, what measures could be taken to maybe, maybe not prevent, but um, lessen the effects of gentrification. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we hope to have brought you some insights on the topic and are looking forward to a discussion. Yeah, exactly. Let us know what you think and uh let's talk about cities yeah bye